The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. You may be seated for the reading of God's Word. Our first reading is from Colossians 1, which is in your pew Bible starting on page 983. As always, you are welcome to bring a Bible home if you don't have one of your own. Redeemer would love to provide that gift for you. Starting in verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. The Pew Bibles are a gift to you if you don't have one, so please feel free to take it home today. Now let's all rise for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Well, church family, it's my pleasure to introduce to you, if you don't already know him, the Reverend Tuck Bartholomew. 
Tuck serves as the canon for church planting for our diocese. Now, that's a lot of words that not everybody understands. And so we're an ancient church and an ancient tradition, and therefore we've got some ancient lingo. So a canon for church planting equals, let me translate, a director of church planting for our regional network. Okay? So Tuck oversees all of the church plants that are established within the Diocese of the Mid-Atlantic, which is like Virginia and D.C. and parts of Maryland um, and West Virginia. And so it's appropriate that Tuck is here to preach to us on the Sunday where we commission All Souls Anglican Church to go and to be established in the Manchester neighborhood. So Tuck, we're glad you're here. Can I say a prayer for you as you begin? Heavenly Father, thank you for my friend and brother and co-laborer, Tuck. Lord, I pray that you would speak through him to us this morning. Would you open our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive your word to us through your servant, Tuck. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. But canon just is so much more intriguing than director. Um, it, it is always good to be in Richmond and to be with you, Redeemer Church. I uh, have so appreciated the way Dan has welcomed me into my role, which I've only been in for about a year and a half now. And, um, and I love the work of church planning that you're doing that we're celebrating today. But this is the Feast of Christ the King, um, and that is a day when the church remembers very intentionally, at the very end of the sort of the, the liturgical calendar year, right? We remember that Jesus is raised from the dead. He is ascended on high. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, right? And he has been given the name that is above every name. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And it's a day when it is very appropriate on that day to sort of pair that, as Dan said just a moment ago, with um, commissioning all souls. Because why else would you do the work of church planting if God had not raised Jesus from the dead and given him the name that is above every name? Why would we feel this calling? Why would we take the risk of this calling? Now, the church's vocation is to manifest the truthfulness of who Jesus is in our world today. We continue to incarnate his reality in the neighborhoods that we step foot. Um, Now think about that for just a moment. The moment, if you think very hard about that, right, very long about that, you immediately begin to recognize that God hasn't set his gospel word sort of out there willy-nilly in the world, but he's embodied it in a people. It's an embodied word. It's not just ideas that we read about in the Bible or that we read about in theological books or Christian books, but we're meant to experience Jesus in the church, to taste the reality of these words in and through our life together. Now I say that and some of you think, but the church gets it wrong a lot of times, right? And the truth is the church gets it wrong a lot of times. If you ever take the time to read a lot of church history, it's not all glory. And in fact, it's not very much that at all. It's a lot of violence. It's a lot of misuse of power. It's, you know, and we, we can listen to like the rise and fall of Morris Hill and we can think the misuse and abuse of power in the church. It's horrible. It's awful. Where did this thing come from? Well, it comes from the fact that we are broken people, that we are sinful people. And it has been a part of the story of the church from the very beginning. We forget the mystery, the poetry, the beauty of the gospel. 
and we distance ourselves from it. We do what the writer and pastor Mandy Smith says, we do kingdom things in empire ways. I love that phrase, hold on to it. it it's worth holding on to. Because one of the things that you want in the church communities that you align yourself with is that they don't do kingdom things in empire ways, but they do kingdom things in kingdom ways, which is always the way of the cross. Despite the painful realities of church abuse and sexual scandal and all manner of scandal where we just don't embody the truthfulness of the gospel, the calling of the church remains the same. Because Jesus intends that his word be proclaimed in a fleshy manner. That people encounter the risen Christ in your life together. One of my early mentors in the church, he had a little tagline that he always said, and he probably still does. He said to the congregation over and over and over and over again across the time that I worked with him, your life is a sermon in shoes. Your life is a sermon in shoes. And he was trying to help them to realize that while they may have shown up at church to hear his sermon, that God was as interested in the sermon of their lives as they live out the story of Jesus. They embody the story of Jesus for their neighbors because the word is meant to continually be incarnate in the world so people encounter Jesus in a meaningful way, in a personal way, in a visual way, in a touchable way. So we take the risk of mission. So this morning, the Heinemans, the Camus, the, the, um, and all of you that are sort of aligning, that will come up at the end of the service and, and be sent out, right, to start a new church. You are taking the risk of starting a new church, of embodying this great commission of Jesus into the world. And guess what? There'll be points where the, there's all kinds of beauty and greatness, but you're gonna have all kinds of occasion to repent, And just acknowledge that you still get it wrong. That we don't represent Jesus very clearly to the world. But that is the beauty of our gospel. That God is a God who is always merciful. And so we become a people through whom the world sees mercy being experienced over and over and over again. As the experience that God invites them on into. But the risk of church planning isn't just for those of you that are leaving this comfortable, beautiful setting of worship, joyful worship, where all of the systems are neatly run. And Jeff King is doing what Jeff King does so beautifully, right? You're going into a new space. And some of those props, some of that foundational stuff is just not there yet because you haven't fully created it yet. There's a risk in church planting, but the risk is also to redeemer. And you know, you're, you're tasting that, you're experiencing that. And we often might think, yeah, of course there's risk because you know, some of the people that tithe are leaving, you know, what are we going to do with our church budget? Right? Those are very practical things. And we do think about those things in the church, but you know what, when you show up next Sunday, redeemer church, some of the people that you're used to seeing they're going to be worshiping in Manchester. They're not here. They're not beside you in the pews. They're not lifting their voices in praise with you. They're not taking the prayers to their lips. They're not gathering to the same table at the same moment as you. They're across the river. 
And there will be points at which you feel the loss of their presence palpably. There's risk in church planting. And we do these kinds of things, these kinds of missionary things because Jesus is king. He's the one in whom God has declared an end to all hostility and the beginning of his reign of peace. And the spirit of peace is afoot in our world doing stuff. And so what All Souls wants to do across the river is figure out what the Lord is doing and tag along with it and become a community that can gather people and bear witness to the glory of who Jesus is. So it's Christ the King Sunday and the texts that we just read are not particularly rosy. They are, there's some distinct beauty in them, but woven in throughout these texts of scripture, we are reminded over and over again of the crucifixion of the death of Jesus. The gospel reading takes us straight away there with the story of crucifixion. The story in Colossians, Paul takes us to a moment where we rehearse and remember this high Christology of who Jesus is, his absolute greatness. But woven throughout Paul's story is the centrality of the cross. So the Christian community is never a community that can get away from its vocation of suffering. We're called to be like Jesus in the world, in the world to take up our cross and to follow him. Think about the Colossians text for just a minute. Paul begins with this statement, this declaration of who you are as a delivered people. God has rescued you from one domain and he has brought you into another the kingdom of the son that he loves, the beloved son. And in him, you have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. In other words, you are a community that is delivered. He's using Exodus language to talk about the identity now of the church. You're delivered. Sit with that for just a moment. Does that resonate with you? I know for me, a lot of times in my life, I am mostly walking around thinking, I do not in any remotely way feel delivered. I feel profoundly stuck in the brokenness of this world. And very often in the brokenness of my own story. Do you feel that? But the deep truth about you, that your story as broken and painful, that our story as broken and painful as it may be is being woven into is the story of the history that God is writing in the person of Jesus. That's your ending. That's where you belong. That's your identity, your greater identity than your birth narrative. In verses 15 to 18, Paul takes us into this space of thinking about the greatness of Jesus. And the very first thing that he wants us to remember is that Jesus makes the invisible God visible. That's like remarkable. Because the people of God had lived for a very long time believing and understanding certain truths about God as we read them in the Hebrew scriptures, but not ever really thinking about God as touchable in the way that the apostles shook hands with Jesus, embraced him, gave him a holy kiss, sat and had a meal with Jesus. And what Paul wants us to remember most about Jesus is exactly what John wants us to remember in the Gospel of John, when he, right? No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, has revealed him in a very tangible way, in a body like ours. 
Like that is just weird to think about. There is so much mystery in a statement like that. And yet that's the truthfulness of who Jesus is. So we live in a world where people may be spiritually curious or maybe they long for transcendence or they long to connect with something that is greater than their, their own life story that happens between their birth and their death dates. Jesus is the one who shows us that God, who connects our lives to transcendent reality that we so desperately need. Jesus, the word made flesh. Paul connects the life of Jesus back in time to creation itself, reminding us that the very savior we've touched is the one who created the universe. Mystery, I don't know how to make sense of that. I can barely wrap my mind around it. Paul takes Jesus back into the beginning and then he situates Jesus in this beautiful space of a moment of new creation because it is in this savior crucified and risen that God has set in motion a whole new world that you belong to, that you're a part of. This is the kingdom of the beloved son and you belong to that kingdom. So think about that for a moment. My experience, I've been a, I'm 61 years old. I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been a pastor and a minister in the church for a pretty long time, almost half my life, maybe half my life even, or more than half of my life, maybe. Wow, that's scary to think about. Um, but here's what I observe about life in the church is we get very comfortable with what we think we've understood about God. And that comes to us through worship that we've come to love and enjoy. And it comes to us through preaching that we've learned to love and enjoy. And it comes to us through fellowship and the community that we enjoy with one another, alongside of one another, and maybe even the missions that we do with one another. But the moment we begin to encounter cultural change out there, we get a little nervous. And the moment we begin to encounter neighbors, who aren't quite like us, that they don't, maybe they don't look like us or dress like us, they don't speak like us, or they, they hold different values from us. They struggle differently than us. When we encounter difference very often, what I observe in the church is we just back off. We're afraid we don't have anything to say. We don't know how to say, or we feel defensive, right? And so we can very easily embrace this posture of being defensive against culture, because we're the faithful and we don't know how to love our neighbor well. But what's intriguing to me about the person of Jesus is when you read the gospel stories, you never ever get that in him, ever. There's not a hint of culture war in Jesus, not a hint. He is able to walk into any conversation with a religious person like a high Pharisee with a Sadducee who has a little degraded views of some things, right, maybe, with other religious leaders, with the marginal, with the lost, with the sinners, with the prostitutes, with Samaritans who were so messed up in the eyes of most Jewish persons. Jesus can go into a conversation with anyone. Why? Because he's the beloved of God. He has no fear. He's able to show up in the room differently. And that is your calling. 
because you belong to his kingdom. You are the beloved in Christ. And so you've been called to go into the world in the same way that Jesus went into the world. You're not making up your own words. You're extending his words to them. Paul, as he begins to talk about what it might mean for Jesus to be the firstborn in this new creation, he uses language and tells us essentially that all of reality coheres in him, right? In other words, we live in a world that's pretty fragmented. And we see that politically, and we see that economically, and we see it racially, and we see it just in all the little ways that hate sort of spikes its head in our families even. We recognize the brokenness of the world. So I traveled over from Charlottesville, Virginia, where I live, and last Sunday evening, there was an act of violence on the university campus at a school bus at the end of a, at the end of a, you know, a, a field trip. There was a shooting, and three men are dead as a result of that. The fragmentation of the world is profoundly real. And what Jesus wants us to understand and what Paul here is articulating about Jesus is that that fragmented world begins to come back together in a coherent way in him. In other words, our stories of pain aren't the only story in the room. God is pleased to take us to a different ending in the person of Jesus. But that doesn't mean we all become alike each other, right? And we're not a monolithic community at all. I love Laman Sane's definition of conversion. He was a missiologist at uh, Yale Divinity. And he, he says this about conversion. He says, it is a turning of ourselves to God. And that means all of ourselves without leaving anything behind. What are the parts of yourself that you would rather have left out of the room this morning? God sees all of it. Our hearts are open before him. He goes on and he says it doesn't, but, also, but that also means not replacing what is there with something else. Sometimes we think that if we just get a replacement self, that that's enough, that's good. But God wants yourself. He wants your unique story in its diversity, but he wants it turned toward him so that he can take your story to a much fuller place. Conversion is a refocusing of the middle life and its cultural and social underpinnings and of our feelings and affections and instincts in light of what God has done in Jesus. In other words, Jesus doesn't tear down cultural and personal distinctives. He completes them. He takes them to a new ending. He takes us to a new place with himself as our lives begin to come back together in him. Some of you have experienced the reality of this personally. You are aware that you've had a lot of suffering in your life. Maybe you're aware of some place of trauma, traumatic experience in your life, and you know that insofar as you found healing, it's only because you found a larger narrative that helps you make sense of the suffering you've experienced. And that is the story of Jesus. The Jesus who does this, who works these kinds of things in us and in our world, Paul says he's the head of the body, the church. You have a Jesus who is always interested in every part of your life, in everything. 
Paul sees in Jesus' resurrection the beginning of a whole new world. It's not just that a bunch of friends that love Jesus got their buddy back, but that in the resurrection of Jesus, there is that joy of seeing him back. He's not dead, but there is greater things happening. And that is that God has set in motion a whole new community, a whole new world, and we're a part of that. And I just want you to think about that as you think about mission. If you know that you serve under the risen Christ, it does give you courage to go into the world, but not in hubris, but with great humility as you take up your cross. And that is the invitation. Come back as we finish up to the gospel reading. As we close, there's some really beautiful things to note in this depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus. Here, Luke begins with these words of Jesus on his lips on the cross. Now think about this, right? We in the church beautify the cross. It's gold, (laughs) right? It's quite lovely. And we reverence the cross and we are very accustomed to the cross. Some of you are wearing crosses this morning, right? It becomes jewelry for us in many, yeah, thank you. (laughs) It becomes jewelry, right? And so it's easy for us to sort of distance ourselves from what this was. And it was a form, a gruesome form of capital punishment in the Roman world. It was a horrific form of death. It was intentionally horrific because any political sort of uh, rebel that would find themselves in a space of crucifixion and their followers were meant immediately to see the cross and be dispersed because nobody wants that to happen to them. And so here we are in this moment of painful, gruesome, agonizing death. And the words on Jesus's lips are, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. Sometimes when we talk about forgiveness and we think about forgiveness showing up in our lives or we think about people that are going to extend forgiveness to someone, we often prefer it if they've understood the exact nature of what they've done wrong. And what Jesus shows us here in this radical moment of forgiveness is he's not waiting for the crowds to understand what they're doing. Father, forgive them because they are ignorant. They are blind. They are stuck. They are lost. And this is a moment that is described as a mocking moment. In other words, as Jesus hangs on the cross, All the crowds that may have been mesmerized by miracle or his teaching or whatever they liked about Jesus are suddenly making fun of Jesus. Why? Because crucified messiahs aren't messiahs. And so there's mocking going on. And even with the sign that's placed, maybe that's a form of Roman mockery. This is the king of the Jews. Then there's this dialogue among the criminals. One of the criminals mocks Jesus The other criminal rebukes the mocker of Jesus, right? Why? Because he begins to discern in Jesus as he is on the cross that his story is different from his own. He doesn't belong there. This isn't a story that makes sense. It's not a right ending on the life of Jesus. And so he appeals to Jesus to remember him. And Jesus says, you'll be with me today in paradise. So these two words that are given in these last moments of Jesus's life, a word of forgiveness, even in the context of our blindness and our unseeing, our our ignorance, and a word of hope and belonging for someone who had no reason to think their story would ever make sense in the kingdom of God. 
And yet Jesus says, you belong and you'll be with me. And this is the work of King Jesus and it is the work of the church that we're called to do. You are called Redeemer Church and you are called All Souls Church to go into your respective neighborhoods and your respective sort of groups and regions of the city and all of your acquaintances and you are called to go there in the likeness of Jesus and that means that that you are called to pronounce words of forgiveness. (laughs) You're called to extend the peace of the kingdom of God. That is your message. That God has said there's no more hostility because he's taken all of that into himself on the cross. You're called to speak that word and sometimes people will mock you because you will suffer. And sometimes there will be those who say, tell me a little bit more about how my life can be a part of what I perceive your life to be a part of. That is the vocation of the church. Just close with a little quote from Craig Barnes. He's a writer, a pastor, past president of Princeton Theological Seminary. And he asks this. He says, what would a world look like if it were run by persons in tune with the poetry of the gospel? That is exactly the question answered in the biblical notion of the kingdom of God. It would be a world in which enemies are loved. It would be a world in which the poor inherit the earth. And no one hurts another out of anxiety about what tomorrow may bring. These words depict the wisdom of heaven, but they appear foolish and naive when they're spoken anywhere else on earth. So the poet stands in the midst of a work that has grown jaded with reality and speaks in such a way as to open the doors of the kingdom of truth. The poet's lifelong apprenticeship is to move others, to stir them from the sleepy reality and awaken them to the presence of the kingdom that is in their midst. That is your vocation, to speak and to embody this word of peace in the world that doesn't taste it very often. May God give us grace to live that way. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us as we continue to think on the things that you're teaching us this morning, the ways in which you're moving us as we sing and as we pray and as we gather at your table. Would you remind us of the king that we serve and would you remake us in his likeness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.